Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Rhode Island expands sick leave. The Cape's first marijuana plants for sale are flowering, and Democrats are already heading to New Hampshire ahead of 2018. We discuss the latest news from Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and the Cape in our regional roundtable. Later in the show, Zinzi Clemens' debut novel tackles a tough and tender life passage, a mother's death. When you lose someone, you're sort of expected to cry for a year and then it's done. That's not how it works. The memories come back around and it can be your entire life. Loss is at the heart of Clemens' debut novel, What We Lose, an intimate coming-of-age story which also explores love, identity, and womanhood. What We Lose is our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me from New Hampshire, Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Welcome back, Arnie. It's a pleasure. Joining me from Hippo Studios in Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Philip. Hi there. And joining me from Cape Cod, Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times. Hello again, Paul. Hello, Kelly. And I'm going to start with you, Paul, because as you know, we're back and forth about marijuana dispensaries in Massachusetts, some communities saying no, whatever, whatever. But I was interested in this piece that you all reported about uh, marijuana plants that will be processed uh, into a variety of medicinal products for the Cape. And we'll go into the regions of first dispensary. Talk about when we can expect to see that product in that dispensary and how excited people are there. You know, it's interesting to note that um, a lot of the talk these days is about recreational marijuana in Massachusetts. The idea of whether towns will allow it, not allow it. I think what people forget is that medical marijuana has been approved and process has been created, uh, the bureaucracy that is. And now companies are moving through the various steps to get up and running. And, and that's certainly the case here uh, down on the Cape and in, in the South Shore. Uh, Medical Marijuana of Massachusetts now has a facility open where they are growing about 4,000 plants of various strains of marijuana, and they're in various stages of growth. And only about half of their facility, they have a 46,000-square-foot manufacturing facility in an industrial park in Plymouth, and they're hoping to have these, uh, they're flowering now, as you as you mentioned, Callie, and they're hoping to be full growing and uh, being ready for a dispensary by uh, the beginning of 2018. And among places they'll, they'll distribute it is a place uh, here on the Cape in Mashpee, and that place is also up and running. We got a sneak peek this past week of how the operation is, is going, and it uh, seems like all systems go for uh, medical marijuana in Massachusetts. Well, Paul, I want to say that is I think consider this good news because these people are suffering and they, and they really need the product. But I am still so angry that the bureaucracy to which you referred has taken this long. 
we agreed, we meaning the people in the state, passed this bill ages ago, well before recreational marijuana. All those people who needed that treatment have been held up. Some of them didn't make it while waiting for this relief. And also, not only for relief, sometimes it can give them extension of life. So, I mean, it's just, it's really unconscionable that it's taken this long. I'm glad to see that it's finally opening, but I just have to say that, that it really has been beyond the pale, in my opinion, in terms of fulfilling what voters wanted. Without a question. And of course, you know, that's part of the challenge when you have a voter referendum uh, that approves something. And that's what was the case with medical marijuana, where voters went to the polls and approved it. Okay, great. But then, you know, the actual details, how is it going to work? Who is going to implement it? How is security going to happen? What's the actual bureaucracy at the state level? Those wheels always turn very slowly. And, and you're right. It's frustrating, I think, for many that it was passed so many years ago and now, only now, is it moving forward. And in the case of medical marijuana in Massachusetts, it actually took a couple lawsuits to get themselves in a position of where they are now, of, of getting ready to open the doors. They were given provisional permits and then the, those permits were taken away. So they went to court and fought and got them. So now uh, here we are, just on the dawn, I guess, of, of uh, the industry in Massachusetts. I can't remember where New Hampshire or Rhode Island is on the question of medical marijuana. So in, uh, bring me up to date, Arnie, and then... Um, we, uh, we finally did pass the medical marijuana, but I want to go back a little bit to Massachusetts because I want to remind everyone, remember when the decrim bill passed? again, by referendum. And I think every single public official opposed it, every single one. There wasn't anyone that embraced it. And yet every town except two passed it by a majority of the vote. So you you have a situation where the referendum really reflects the understanding and the will of the people. Unfortunately, politicians don't do that. And this knuckle-dragging should almost be predictable. We see it in the state of New Hampshire. We see it in Massachusetts. We see it everywhere. And I think that there's, there's almost a resentment that they didn't own it and that they were sort of forced to do it. And when you have that resentment, then they're going to put up every, you know, hoop and and bar to make it happen. And one more thing, I know in New Hampshire we have one of the highest opioid and heroin overdose rates in the United States. There is some suggestion that marijuana and medical marijuana may in fact be able to help us with that situation. I don't know if that's, I mean, everyone's looking for some sort of solution. But again, we know this is useful. We know it can change people's lives. We know it really, it's a quality of life issue for people who are very ill. And you just have to ask legislators, so you didn't get what you wanted. It wasn't on your terms, but the people have passed it. That means you should sprint to the finish mark. Exactly. And uh, Philip in Rhode Island. Yeah, in Rhode Island, we passed medical marijuana a few years ago. We have yet to pass recreational marijuana. And when this story came up, I did a little bit of research because it's super confusing and complicated to keep track of all this. And from what I can tell, across the country, there are 29 states plus Washington, D.C., where medical marijuana is currently legal. There are eight states plus D.C., where marijuana is fully legal. And we shouldn't forget that at the federal level, if you ask the DEA, marijuana is still a Schedule One banned controlled substance right next to ecstasy, LSD, and heroin as a drug with, quote, no currently accepted medical use and high potential for abuse. So I think historians will look back at this time we're living in as an awfully confused time where uh, the country was in a major transition on this issue, and you could literally go from one place to another and find a completely different set of rules. Moving on, Philip Isle, Rhode Island has passed legislation or to um, pay for sick leave for 100,000 people. That is huge. There are not that many states, but uh, Massachusetts is one that has already done this. Talk about it. 
Yeah, I mean, so while the country is kind of lurching to the right, Rhode Island is kind of quietly, because we're always quiet, we're the smallest state, swinging to the left a little bit. You may remember that in the presidential primary of 2016, Bernie Sanders beat Hillary Clinton by 12 percentage points in Rhode Island. The governor, Gina Raimondo, who's also always been kind of a centrist Democrat, has been noticeably swinging to the left recently with proposals for free college tuition, which we've talked about on the show. She recently announced an initiative to raise money to help dreamers re-up their dreamer status financially. And the most recent kind of indication of the swing, there have been a number of progressives elected to the state legislature in recent years, including in one case, this uh, House majority leader uh, lost an election. And this most recent thing is that, yes, we've passed paid sick leave in Rhode Island, which will cover about 100,000 workers, as the national news outlet The Intercept reported. The new law will guarantee workers at large firms five earned sick days by 2020. Workers at businesses with 17 or fewer employees will be allowed to have three unpaid sick days once a year. Overall, around 90 percent of the state's workforce will now have access to paid sick days. So progressives in Rhode Island are are celebrating this as the latest uh, kind of local victory. Usually when this has come up, and I think in all the rest of these states as well, I remember it being part of the discussion in Massachusetts. The issue for a lot of businesses is that we can't afford this. And I think it's interesting because Rhode Island has just sort of come out of the deepest recession, depression, whatever, and now they're essentially giving 100,000 people a benefit that they certainly couldn't have done in recent years. But that was not something that was a deterrent in getting support for this bill. I think there was a compromise, which was ultimately passed. Mm-hmm. Um, this wasn't the most perhaps generous uh, version of the law that was ultimately passed. But it's interesting to note that when it did pass, the governor framed it as a middle class issue. She said the middle class still needs more job security. That's what this is about. It's not just enough to have a job. We need folks to have a good job with a fair and decent wage and the ability to take a few days off if they get sick or if someone in their family gets sick. Perhaps not coincidentally, there was also a gubernatorial election next year, Mm. uh, which promises to be pretty tight. Can I raise my hand here? You know what I wrote as I was reading this article? Primaries matter. That's what this is really a story about. Mm. Because as you pointed out how successful Bernie was in Rhode Island, that was a primary success. That's what that was about. And I think what mm. you're now seeing is because what a lot of progressive Democrats are suddenly doing is is that if you don't primary people who basically have been refusing to sort of embrace these ideas because they think it's not time, because they think it's, you know, it's not corporate enough, because they think it's, it might in fact impact the economy, even though in a large extent you want people to be healthy at work because unhealthy people come to work and then get everybody else infected. So it makes sense. It's actually part of the healthcare conversation that we've been having in America. And as I, I read this, remember when Cantor lost his seat because of that incredible primary and everybody was mm-hmm. shocked? Well, I think what you're seeing what the progressives are now doing is they're going into these, you know, very comfortable Democratic seats where people have been refusing to look at issues because they just didn't want to rock the boat. And they said, you know what, if not now, when? And that's really what this was about. This is an important issue, but it was an issue that was not being moved forward. And with those just a handful of votes that were changing, it was able to get the kind of traction it needed. And and I just wanted to add one more quick thing as part of this kind of progressive wave. A headline from the Providence Journal uh, just a couple weeks ago wrote, R.I. House passes bill to take guns from those accused of domestic abuse. So I really think the context for this is a miniature wave in Rhode Island of of progressive legislation passing. Hmm. Paul, you want to weigh in? 
Well, just, uh, you know, I think that there are economic benefits to it as well, although, you know, some businesses have argued in the past that, you know, whether it be sick time or, or minimum wage increases, what have you, that that's going to hurt their businesses. I think a lot of um, businesses would also say they make themselves more competitive when they have certain worker benefits to being in, in place. And, and I think of, for instance, we've talked in the past, I think, about Amazon looking around the country for possible places to locate and Rhode Island being in the running you know, this might be an attraction. Amazon can make their own sick time rules, obviously, but if you are trying to locate a, a place that's going to have a number of jobs, it's not just you, but your spouse, and your spouse is going to work somewhere else. And if there are benefits in the community that a company will be able to take advantage of, I think that could have some competitive advantages to attracting businesses. And we're talking three or five days. I mean, let's look at the numbers we're talking about. This is not like saying you're going to take two weeks off. And illness has consequences just beyond the person who's ill. It has consequences for everybody else in your workplace. And people go to work sick because they can't afford to stay home. Well, well I now think that's maybe the deal. when they're acute, they can. Yeah, that's the big deal. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Arnie Arneson, you just heard her, of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, Philip Isle, freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island, and Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times. And we're discussing the regional news from the Cape, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. So, Arnie, back to you. Early New Hampshire visits by Democrats. <laughs> now, we said 2018 in our lead-in, but they're looking to 2020, which makes it early, early visits by oh, these God, people. You guys. What I always <laughs> tell people is that literally almost two hours after the election, you see people who are looking for the next election, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, and they already start putting people on the ground. They already start actually figuring out who's running for the mayor in Manchester, who's going to be running for governor, who's going to be running for Congress, and they start offering their help and helping to fundraise and come in for an event. So just since... Uh, it will be one year on November 8th when we elected uh, Donald Trump. We have seen in the state of New Hampshire Martin O'Malley, Jason Kander, Joe Biden, the uh, L.A. mayor, um, Eric uh, uh, Garcetti. We've seen Tim Ryan, the person that ran against Pelosi. It's just been unbelievable. And these are all these people who are beginning to sort of create relationships, unlike Donald Trump, who didn't have to do house parties, didn't have to shake hands, didn't have to create relationships, because everybody kind of knew him because he'd been on our tube with the and he was sort of bigger than life. So he'd been in people's living rooms. These are people who nobody really quite knows except for maybe Biden and Bernie, and they really need to create those relationships that when they make the decision to come, they've actually created a network around the state, and it literally starts four years before the election. And another example of that on the Republican side, because maybe he thinks that Donald Trump will not be reelected or maybe will not run again, is John Kasich, who has never left. <laughs> he's wow. Sort of, wow. He's, he's literally stayed. And that's the beauty of this state. Can I just say something? I mean, you'll meet people that will never become president, but are remarkable human beings. And I, on the Republican side for Kasich, I met Kasich when he ran for president in 1999. For like four minutes, he ran. But we became friends because I was doing, doing morning drive time. When he ran this time against Donald Trump, Kasich knew Arnie Arneson. Why? Because he'd actually started that relationship in 1999. That's true with a lot of candidates. Even if it's not for 2020, they know that if they create that relationship and the opening happens in 2024, they've already developed that foundation. Well, here's something interesting, Philip, and maybe obvious, but even with what everything Arnie has said about people landing moments after the election, no matter what, the Concord Monitor article suggests that 
the Trump is really fueling a lot of early New Hampshire visits. In other words, people feeling, I guess, on the Democratic and Republican side, there's some wiggle room here potentially for them to get some attention in an upcoming election. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it was a quote, I think, from the head of the local Democratic Party about people just not being able to wrap their heads around Donald Trump being president. And this is perhaps an outgrowth of that. I thought an interesting another interesting line from that article was how they pointed out with and I'm quoting with Hillary announcing she won't be running Hillary Clinton announcing she won't run again for public office. The Democrats may see their largest presidential field and most wide open race in nearly a generation, which is an interesting point. Uh, with a lot of implications. I think it's worth doing a reality check here, though. It's not even a year, not even a year has passed since Donald Trump was elected, let alone since he took office. This is so incredibly early. And to me, I think this is somehow related to how when you walk into CVS, it seems like the Halloween candy keeps coming out earlier and earlier. We're in this state of uh, perpetual campaigning in this country, which I think we need to talk at some point about what the implications of that are. Is that really a good thing? I don't know. It certainly drives headlines and chatter. And I, as a political junkie, I'm interested in this. And I saw some names in this article, including the Los Angeles mayor, who I didn't even know were throwing their hat in or, or at least taking some or very yes. preliminary steps. But I, I think but we have four. Well, well, really me... quickly? well, remember, New Hampshire and Iowa are these two little relatively tiny states. They're, no one's really throwing their name into the ring where they want to, you know, be operating out of New York and California. And, you know, so it's a place where you can kind of be, let me use the term, under the radar, Kelly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and you can sort of create the relationships and show up when a mayor is running for election and show up when someone is running for state rep and maybe help them out and get to know the activists. Because this is really about creating relationships with activists. That's what this is about, Phil. And so, and mm. the way you create relationships with activists is you don't show up an hour before you run saying, hi, do you want to support me? You kind of get to know the activists on their turf, on their small races, so that they create that level of trust and say, this is a guy I think I want to follow, or this is a female I want to follow. And I think that's why it happens. And, and New Hampshire is the place where those kind of intimate, under-the-radar relationships can happen, and they may, in fact, lay the right foundation for a future win. Now, Paul, this is what I wanted to put to you. Uh, so Philip makes the point about seeing the Halloween candy early. But here's what that does in the end, though disgusting it might be. You know, you see it, you see it, you get familiar with it. And, and there's something to be said about it. And let's face it, I don't know a name, maybe Kasich, that could go up in New Hampshire right now and get a lot of name recognition. So for people who see the field is wide open or the possibility of the field being wide open, they got to show up like the Halloween candy early and often uh, for somebody to say, oh, oh, you, yeah, you're talking about running. What do you think? That's my theory. Well, without a question. I mean, you know, and first of all, it, it speaks to, I mean, you know, there's always a lot of talk. Well, what what's the value of being the quote unquote first in the nation primary? Well, this is the value of being the first in the exactly. nation primary in New Hampshire and in Iowa. The candidates are already there one year into the, the incumbent presidency. Because just what you said, Kelly, people need to build that name recognition over time. They need, as uh, Arnie said, to build the relationships with the activists. I mean, there's this running gag on on the show Veep. I don't know if anybody watches Veep, uh, but they keep coming back to New Hampshire. And and someone who would be, in the scheme of things, a relatively small politician in New Hampshire is a presidential kingmaker. And they come there because this person can deliver so many, you know, powerful votes. And so, you know, very powerful people come to this relatively small person. And uh, there's a whole fascinating subplot there. So this has been going on for a long time. I went went to St. Anselm College in Manchester. I remember... um, uh, a presidential candidate 
I was trying to remember the name. I actually think it was Dick Gephardt, but don't hold me to this. Coming to campus and buying kegs for students. What? Uh, trying to attract them. You know, <laughs> oh I don't God. know if that's his base, but uh, obviously it didn't work, so I, I don't know. Um, but the last point I'd make is that coming early is, is good because you can establish those relationships, but coming early means also that there's a lot of time between when you're there right now and when you're actually running for office, and so many things can change. And I think uh, just a few years back of uh, when General De David Petraeus, he was still running CENTCOM, and he came and spoke uh, in a couple different places in New Hampshire, and the place went crazy. Arnie, you probably remember this. Yeah, I do. People really thought, he, they thought, uh-oh, Petraeus is preparing to run for president, and of course we all know what happened to him. So uh, it doesn't always lead to uh, the promised land. Well... I, I just think it's fascinating, and that's one of the, actually, the interesting points of being so close to New Hampshire is because eventually they also trek through Massachusetts and, to that some extent, Rhode Island while they're hanging around. So you get a chance to see them a little bit as the uh, New Hampshire residents do. Let me move on. This has been a lot in the news, Paul, about the tension around the NFL players and what President Trump had to say about them and taking a knee or not taking a knee and the controversy with the flag. So that's the backdrop of this. And there was one guy, uh, Stephen Pina, who I did hear about, who was asked to resign. He's from Brockton. And he made comments I can't I'll read all of them here, but one part of his uh, post said, dance, monkey, dance. And that was deemed appropriately to be a racist statement. And so he was asked to resign from his position. What I didn't know, and you sent me, was this guy, Joseph Glenn, who is a, apparently an outspoken West Yarmouth resident and member of the Yarmouth Housing Authority who went the same way. So you are very careful in your piece not to exactly say what he said, but apparently was bad enough that uh, he independently realized he had to resign as well. Yeah, and, you know, the irony here, of course, is uh, the, these are people who, uh, both uh, Stephen Pena and uh, Joseph Glynn, who were pointing out that in the NFL, players may have consequences to their actions, and, of course, their comments ended up having, guess what, consequences to the actions. And these are individuals who uh, made statements, and, of course, we all know that with the with the kneeling, there's been all sorts of controversy and all sorts of opinions, and, and you really can't even get away from it. I mean, I, I listen to sports radio sometimes, uh, but not right now, because sports radio is, is more or less CNN and Fox and MSNBC. It's all political talk about kneeling and players and what have you. So, you know, it's not surprising that people are talking about these things in social media, and uh, it's not surprising even that local officials are. And that's the case with Joseph Glynn. He, first and foremost, is a, is a well-known uh, sort of community activist. He's involved in many things and uh, has been a, a low-level politician in the community for some time, uh, including uh, most recently on the Yarmouth Housing Authority. Well, he too made some comments on Facebook that drew a lot of response from people, some people supporting him and some people calling him out for things that he said. He, he ended up taking the post down and ultimately the next day said he, he really didn't want to be in the center of all this controversy, and, and so he resigned. Uh, it really hasn't died down. I think even probably today there's probably still comments in, on his Facebook page uh, about this issue. But uh, it speaks to, I think, the inflamed passions people have about this issue, uh, uh, in my opinion, overly exaggerated inflamed passions, but they are what they are. And uh, people are now finding, again, that there are some consequences to saying things that are over the line. 
Exactly. I just have to say that in both of these cases and in many others I've read, but to say afterwards, oh, I didn't realize it was racist. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I feel bad. Really? I, I That's just can't. They took a knee. I can't at that point. You know, you, you posted it, you said it, you, you knew what you were doing, at least in my opinion, own up to the fact that you said it. And now, uh, as Paul has said, there are some consequences to that. Don't try to act like the next day you didn't know what was happening. That's just my. Go ahead. Can I just add one more thing? Yeah. I think we've strayed so far from what the protest is about, and it's become about President Trump and about all these other You're things. Exactly and I can't right. encourage people enough mm-hmm. to read an op-ed in the New York Times by Eric Reed, who was a San Francisco 49er player and former teammate of Colin Kaepernick. It's called Why Colin Kaepernick and I Decided to Take a Knee. Regardless of where you stand on this issue, this is well worth your time. And it's it's a remarkable piece. Well, you can also listen to my commentary. I'll explain it again for you. (laughs) I I think the most important line that was in the Steve Pena line where he says, I got sucked into the social media outrage. Mm. Listen to what he said. I got sucked into the social media outrage. That's what this is. This is a whirling dervish. People are being encouraged to be more outraged, as you pointed out, Paul, that than it really deserves. People are looking at this as if it's something that it was never. I describe that public protest, the idea of kneeling, was more like a public prayer, a prayer to a country to say, live up to your standards, live up to your constitution, live up to your Bill of Rights. It's a public outcry for equality and justice. It is not an insult. It is not derogatory. It is not about the military. It really is about America's promise. And if we recognize that, maybe we could actually not only embrace it, but maybe love it for what it is. But what Donald Trump has done is turned it into something so over the top. And this idea of getting sucked into the social media outrage tells everything. He couldn't even control himself, and he stopped thinking. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I mean, that's obviously what what happened last week is that, you know, there had been a handful of people protesting for now a couple of years, Colin Kaepernick being, you know, the the most well-known and most infamous, I suppose. Uh, He's had his own consequences of his actions in that he he hasn't been on an NFL team this season. But what happened last weekend was a direct result of what the president had said and and really throwing gasoline on a fire that was, at that point, simply embers. And so uh, I think it'll be interesting uh, to see what happens going forward. Um, I would imagine, I mean, for instance, a group of players met with uh, the NFL commissioner, discussed, you know, their concerns about what had been said, um, and I think described, you know, that not only were we, this wasn't just a protest, but, you know, these are teams, these are families, and they linked arms symbolically to say that we're together. So if you're going to cast about at one of us, you're going to cast about at all of us, and we're going to be unified in that. Well, just to put a button on this, uh, for the purposes of this conversation, I will be interested to see how uh, many others, and there are others in other states, by the way, officials, government officials, and other persons who have made some untoward comments and have had interesting community response. So this may be something that we hear about on down the line. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with our regional roundtable, Arnie Arneson, Philip Isle, and Paul Pronovo. And we're talking about the New England stories you may have missed this week. Arnie, I am extremely excited about the possibility of a private passenger rail in New Hampshire. 
Um, <laughs> uh, just the whole romantic thing of it. I know it's, uh, you know, whenever we talk about new railways, it seems impossible. But these people seem to have the right idea about using tracks that are already there to build a system. Mm-hmm. Well, it's this group called the Boston Surface Railroad Company, and it's a group of kind of investors and business people who actually know railroad experience. Maybe that's what it took, that level of naivete to say, why aren't we doing this? And uh, initially what they're talking about uh, with the Boston Surface Railroad Company is looking at providing um, service from Worcester to Providence by 2018. And then they're talking about looking up north, and they're talking about providing service from Worcester to Lowell to Nashua to Bedford, and then a bus to Manchester. I don't know, to Bedford. Like, maybe maybe one of the businessmen lives in Bedford. I can't quite figure out why they would go there. But anyway, uh, why I love it is that there are a lot of people in New Hampshire that have been talking about rail. A lot of people. But this is a state. We have a highway fund. We don't have a transportation fund. All the money that we raise from our gas tax and whatever can only go for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that's to fix roads. So we can't even imagine rail. We can't imagine making an investment. Nashua forever has been begging for at least some consideration to explore the opportunity for rail, but that meant some kind of government intervention. As soon as it meant government intervention, it never, ever happened, even when the federal government was offering to offer us money. So as soon as these boys came forward and said, would you be interested in doing this? We just need a letter of commitment from you from Nashua. I think Everybody said, where do I sign? Because they really want to do this. And what I think is really exciting is everyone keeps saying, oh, people won't use it, people won't use it. I think they don't look at the next generation. This next generation, they don't want a car. They don't want to own a car. They don't want the liability of a car. They want to be able to use their cell phone and their iPad and their whatever and sit and go to work and do a billable hour or do whatever. But, But car ownership isn't definitional anymore. And when you look at places like Nashua and Manchester that so orient towards the more, you know, popular hubs of Boston and, and Massachusetts, people really don't want the responsibility of a car. And I think this is kind of exciting. I hope it happens. It's not very easy. Uh, but I know there are a lot of people in New Hampshire that will be very supportive of it. The problem is it usually isn't our government. Local governments, yes. State government, no. Well, I think uh, one of the reasons they'll get more excited is it's this private. So the Boston Surface Railroad <laughs> Company, by the way, is the name of the entity. They already have $1.5 million in seed money, they say, and uh, from, from their founders, and $4.5 million more to uh, make this happen. So it, a private passenger rail, what, what's the problem with that? No problem. Just sign off, government <laughs> officials, it seems there, to me. <laughs> there is no problem, but I have to ask. As somebody who lives in Providence, and with all due respect to my own hometown and to Worcester, where are these people clamoring for rail service from Worcester to Providence? Yeah. I can't picture them. Who are these people? Well, I um, think if you build it, they will come. I'm going to quote a movie. Not to be the Debbie Downer, but they did. And admittedly, this is a different instance. They That's did right. build it down in Wickford, uh, an extension of the MBTA. They spent this is, again, public, not private. Tens of millions of dollars on a new station and a new parking lot with the idea, uh, you know, this is extending the Boston public transit down to the lower part of Rhode Island with the idea that if they build it, people would come. And guess what? They haven't really. And the latest I read on that was an article in the Providence Journal calling that line the Debt Express because Rhode (laughs) Island owes nearly $10 million in, you know, they said they'd make up the difference if people didn't ride the rails. Again, this is a private thing, so uh, more power to these guys uh, if they want to make this happen. But I would just say, you know, 
Be careful. I'm not going to get together with Amazon. Well, I, Paul, and they can put it in Worcester. <laughs> Paul, let me let me turn to you because there's a g- excellent example of now this was you know uh, coordinated through government of using available tracks, figuring out a route that wasn't there. I'm talking about the Cape Flyer, and it's extremely popular. People said, eh, maybe a few people. They've had to expand it, both the season and where it goes. You're absolutely right. And, of course, uh, the Cape Flyer is, is a perfect example of transportation official from the Cape. Actually, he was a former, I think, the head of transportation for the state at one point, uh, Tom Kahir. He pushed for Cape Flyer route, and people said, you're crazy. No one's going to get on the train from Boston to the Cape because once they get here, they, they know, you know they need the car once they're here. And guess what? As you said, Callie, it's been wildly successful. So as, as I read this story, I thought, absolutely it has potential. I think what Phil pointed out, I mean, the ironically named Boston Surface Railroad Company, <laughs> I don't think is going to Boston right now. Yes. Um, maybe it, it has aspirations to get to Boston. Otherwise, why would you use that name and, and just call out what you're not doing? They're Boston-based. Um, but, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, but but, but so, isn't this about uh, economic know. opportunity, too? I mean, if you want to help to develop Worcester, if you want to sort of give a shot in the arm to Providence, if you want to help to develop places like Manchester and Nashua, then by creating this ease of transportation, by telling people you don't have to drive in traffic, you know, it creates opportunities for entrepreneurs and businesses to, like, reconsider, why do I want to come here? Because look at how my employees can get here. You know, I, I also think that we have to start thinking differently, and if we want to take some of the pressure off of certain areas and we want to develop others, then what we have to do is do we have the infrastructure to support it? And rail is now part of that conversation. Well, I think that's a good point, and, you know, I think the good folks in New Bedford who have been waiting for rail service for decades now, generations probably, um, might put their hand up and be next, and they might say, we'd yeah. rather go to Boston, but it, Providence, will take it. we got to get I, somewhere. I will say that there is not a whole lot of construction happening in Providence, so we notice when things are being built, and there is a brand new residential uh, development going up right next to the Providence train station. I would imagine to court the people who are hopping on trains to Boston every day. So maybe there is something here. Well, I think what happens is people don't know how to market this stuff. I think if it's a good marketing, hello, I've been on Cape Flyer many times because it got marketed to me. So there you go. So I think it can work. We'll keep an eye on it. I'm excited about it. Real quick, Philip, Benny's is closing after uh, oh, geez. so many years in business, all 31 stores. I didn't know this store, but people in our newsroom are really sad about it. Yes, go ahead. Talked about it, if you would. Everybody's sad. You know, Benny's is one of the more iconic retail uh, brands in Rhode Island. It's 93 years old. It's family-owned. If you needed a shovel, if you needed a grill, if you needed a bike, you went to Benny's. It's just, you know, it's iconic. And recently they announced that they're closing all 31 of their stores by the end of the year. Some 700 people, about half of whom are part-time, will be out of a job. And it's just a a sad day. Now, this spurred all kinds of conversation in Rhode Island, and I'll try not to end on a sad note because one of the stories I read was an enterprising reporter from WPRI went out and talked to some of the other iconic Rhode Island brands like Newport Creamery and Dell's Lemonade, kind of a checking in on all of our loved ones story. Um, And apparently they're not (laughs) going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, but yes, this is sad, and it spurred uh, you know countless editorials and think pieces around Rhode Island. Are the millennials to blame? What's going on? Um, there's a petition up in Massachusetts with 5,000 signatures to get Amazon to buy Benny's. It's just a story that you know pulled at a lot of people's heartstrings because Rhode Island is a small place, and, and we've all been to Benny's and bought something there. 
Well, I, I just wanted to mention it, and I'm going to try to get there before the end of the year because it sounds like just the kind of personal mom-and-pop store that I like. Thank you all for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Callie. Arnie Arneson is host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Philip Isle is a freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. And Paul Pronovo is the editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, a big brainy drama told by a fearless, funny young woman. That's how one review describes Zinzi Clemens' much-praised debut novel. Clemens' book, What We Lose, is our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. My conversation with Zinzi Clemens, that's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.